I'd like to ask you to turn in your Bibles to Ecclesiastes chapter 2. Ecclesiastes 2, this morning we'll be studying the first 11 verses. Please give your attention to God's word. I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure. Enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of pleasure, what use is it? I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine, my heart still guiding me with wisdom, and how to lay hold on folly till I might see what was good for the children of man to do under heaven during the few days of their life. I made great works. I built houses and planted vineyards for myself. I made myself gardens and parks and planted in them all kinds of fruit trees. I made myself pools from which to water the forest of growing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had slaves who were born in my house. I had also great possessions of herds and flocks, more than any who had been before me in Jerusalem. I also gathered for myself silver and gold and the treasure of kings and provinces. I got singers, both men and women, and many concubines, the delight of the children of man. So I became great and surpassed all who were before me in Jerusalem. Also my wisdom remained with me, and whatever my eyes desired I did not keep from them. I kept my heart from no pleasure, for my heart found pleasure in all my toil, and this was my reward for all my toil. Then I considered all that my hands had done, and the toil that I had expended in doing it, and behold, all was vanity and a striving after wind, and there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Well, if you haven't figured it out by now, I love a good movie. And one of my all-time favorite movies is the movie Groundhog Day. Now, you know it's a good comedy movie if when you name the movie, people start laughing. They did it in the first service, too. Just name the movie Groundhog Day, and we laugh, because it's a very funny movie. It's a love story, but if you pay careful attention to the movie Groundhog Day, you realize that it's a lot more about laughing and it's about a lot more than just a love story. There's some pretty deep philosophy in that movie. It's a lot like the book of Ecclesiastes, actually. I've thought of it often as I've entered into my studies of this book. The main character in the movie is a weatherman in Pittsburgh named Phil Connors. And Phil Connors is an arrogant, self-centered jerk at the beginning of the movie. And against his will, every year, at the beginning of February, he's sent to Punxsutawney, Pennsylvania, to report on the silly celebration around Groundhog Day. He despises both the assignment and the town that he's sent to. But then something extremely unusual happens. Like a skip in a record, he keeps repeating that Groundhog Day over and over and over again. He keeps waking up, thinking that day is over, and waking up, and the whole thing is reset. He hears the same Sonny and Cher song on the radio, and the whole day 
all the activities all starts over exactly the same. Well, at first, he's really angry about this, to be stuck in Punxsutawney on Groundhog Day over and over and over again. And he keeps trying to escape it. But then when he resigns himself to the fate, the new reality of his life, he realizes there's a perk to all this repetition. That if he keeps living the same day over and over and over, no matter what happens in any given day, no matter what he does in any given day, when he wakes up again, it's all going to start over again. What he realizes is that there are no bad consequences to any of his behavior. He can eat all the junk food that he wants and not have to deal with any of the negative damage to his health. He can get drunk and not worry about a hangover in the morning. He can learn intimate secrets about the lives of the townspeople and then use those secrets later to manipulate them. He can seduce women and not have to deal with relationship issues the day after or the week after. He can rob an armed car and make himself very wealthy And even if he ends up in jail, he doesn't have to worry about it because when the day starts over, he'll be free again. For a while, for quite a while, Phil thinks this is great. But it gets old. And Phil, after living this same day over and over and over and pursuing all of these pleasures, all of the desires of the flesh, after doing that for quite a while, he finally becomes very cynical and depressed, and even suicidal. When he gets to that emotional state, he gives one of his daily forecasts on Groundhog Day, and in that that forecast, this is what he says. You want a prediction about the weather? I'll give you a winter prediction. It's going to be cold, it's going to be gray, and it's going to last you the rest of your life. Does this all sound familiar? Sounds an awful lot like the beginning of Ecclesiastes, doesn't it? Just read in verse 1 of chapter 2, I said in my heart, come now, I will test you with pleasure, enjoy yourself. But behold, this also was vanity. The party is fun while it lasts, but there's always the morning after. We've seen that the book of Ecclesiastes was written by a king. We don't know, it may well have been Solomon, maybe a later Davidic king, but a king in Jerusalem, a king over Israel, a powerful, wealthy king. He calls himself the preacher or the teacher. And as I said a couple weeks ago, he actually creates this other persona, this professor, I call him Professor Q, who presents a search for meaning, a search for purpose in life, but he limits his search to what can be found under the sun. This is a search using the five senses, his mind, his eyes, his ears, touch, taste, feel, smell, whatever he can use to try to find meaning and purpose, but only within the realm that's under the sun, only within the created realm. And last week we saw that this Professor Q, this teacher, The king writing in this persona, he decides to pursue his greatest love in life, which is wisdom. And if it is Solomon, that makes sense, because that was Solomon's gift. That was Solomon's defining characteristic. And so he pursues wisdom, knowing as much as he can about life under the sun, using the scientific method to discover everything he can under the sun, and then trying to apply that well in life. 
And we saw that his conclusion, after all of his search in wisdom, was that it's like striving after wind, and it left him in a position of much vexation and sorrow, because all of it was ultimately meaningless. So here in chapter 2, the king, the Professor Q, he shifts his focus away from knowledge and wisdom to pleasure. And again, he's defining that pleasure in terms of what we use our five senses to experience, what you can see, what you can hear, what you can feel. And he pursues these sensual pleasures to see if he can find meaning and purpose in pleasure. Now, hasn't there always been those two approaches to life? You tend to have people who want to seek pleasures of the mind, knowledge and wisdom. And then you have people who want to seek pleasures of the flesh, what they can feel, what they can experience in the flesh. In ancient Greece, you had the Stoics. And the Stoics were known for pursuing that wisdom, pursuing knowledge, using rationality and reason to find meaning and purpose in life, and denying the desires of the flesh. And then you had the Epicureans, who tended to want to pursue the pleasures of the flesh and find meaning and purpose there, and avoiding pain. Now that's kind of a vast oversimplification of those philosophies, but you get the sense that one wanted to pursue the pleasures of the mind and the other one wanted to pursue the pleasures of the flesh and find meaning and purpose. I'm kind of fascinated by life here in State College as I observe the campus. It seems like those two things coincide, don't they? That during the day there's a pursuit of pleasure through academics and then in the evening there's a pursuit of the pleasures of the flesh. Well, let's look at what this king's pursuit of meaning and purpose through pleasure, where it led him. Now, remember that this Professor Q, or this king, whether he's Solomon or someone else, has been one of the greatest kings in history. He had unlimited authority in his realm and unimaginable wealth at his disposal. So no one in his life, as he pursued this this life of pleasure, no one could say to him, don't you do that because he had ultimate authority. Nobody could say no to him. And nobody could say to him, you can't afford that, because he could, quite honestly. He could afford anything he wanted. Do you remember the warning that God gave to Israel when they were on the verge of coming into the promised land? He said, when you get established in the promised land, you get moved in, you get settled, you're going to want a king like all the other nations. Let me read to you that portion. God warns them about this king that they will have eventually He says in Deuteronomy 17, beginning in verse 14, When you come to the land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you possess it and dwell in it, and then say, I will set a king over me, like all the nations that are around me, you may indeed set a king over you, whom the Lord your God will choose. One from among your brothers you shall set as king over you. Only he must not acquire many horses for himself, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. And when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself in a book a copy of this law approved by the Levitical priests. And it shall be with him, and he shall read in it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by keeping all the words of this law and these statutes and doing them. Do you hear the warning there? Don't allow your kings to become really, really wealthy. Don't allow them to give themselves over to pursuing the lust of the flesh. And make sure that your kings stay in the word of God. 
Because that is what will keep them pursuing the reality that is above the sun. But here we have this great king, this Davidic king, who is ignoring that warning. And he's devoting himself, he's giving himself over to the search for meaning and purpose in pleasure. As he says in verse 10, whatever my eyes desired, I did not keep from them. Now, in this search, he summarizes his search by speaking of six different kinds of pleasure. Six different kinds of pleasure that are going to sound very familiar to all of you. The first one, and of course, in these pleasures, there's also, I want to point out that it includes highbrow pleasures of the culturally elite, as well as lowbrow pleasures of the common man. Everything can be found in one of these categories. The first category that he explored was pleasure in alcohol. He says in verse 3, I searched with my heart how to cheer my body with wine. Now, it's unclear as to whether that means he became a connoisseur of fine wine or whether he became a drunkard. He seems to hint at both here because he says that he laid hold on folly, which makes you think of a drunkard drinking wine, but then he also makes a, makes a strong point that his heart still guided him with wisdom. So in other words, it wasn't with reckless abandon that he gives himself over to alcohol, to drinking wine. It was a thoughtful experiment to see if this can provide for him a sense of meaning and purpose in life. Back in chapter 1, remember the description of life under the sun in chapter 1? It's all cycles. It's this monotonous, boring, repeated cycle of mundane activity on, 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 on the planet, on, under the sun. That that's what life is like. And so, isn't it very tempting to turn to alcohol as an escape from the boredom? To give you a moment of pleasure in the midst of the monotony, of the frustration of life under the sun. The second area that he pursued is pleasure in building his estate. Look at verse 4. He says, I made great works. And what he means by great works is he lists them there. Palaces, vineyards, gardens, pools. Do you notice that all those nouns are plural? He didn't just build one palace or one garden. He built palaces and gardens. He was a very wealthy king. It mentions there that he, in his gardens, he had all kinds of fruit trees. And I was kind of fascinated by that language. A garden filled with all kinds of fruit trees. Does that sound familiar? That's the language used in the beginning of Genesis of the Garden of Eden. And so in a very real sense, I think what the king is doing here is he's trying to build his own little paradise on his estate. His own little Garden of Eden. A place where he could, in a sense, by his own efforts, undo the effects of the curse that God had placed upon the creation. And did you notice that in his little secular Garden of Eden, there are no forbidden fruit? Because he says, I didn't restrain myself from anything that my heart wanted. Most of us experience some small version of this, if not now, eventually. We own our own homes, or we rent a nice home, and we work on the home decor, and we work on the landscaping around the house, and we work on renovation, and it becomes a part of who we are. It's where we find some meaning and purpose and identity, and I know some people that can get totally carried away in that, that that really what their life becomes about is building their estate. 
The third area that he explores is the pleasure and ease and comfort. The lifestyle, the rich and famous. It says in verse 7, I bought male and female slaves. You can imagine a lavish and extensive estate with multiple palaces and multiple gardens. You'd need an army of servants to maintain it and to wait hand and foot upon him and his family. That meant that anything the king didn't want to do, he didn't have to do. He'd have a servant or a slave to do it for him. He was free to pursue his materialistic party lifestyle 24-7 and just have fun in life. And so many of us, so much of the time, we feel like, if I could just live my life that way, if I just had servants to do all the things I don't want to do, and I just had all the money in the world and all the time and all the opportunity to just do whatever my desires led me to do, that we talk, and that, isn't that in American culture? That's kind of like nirvana. That's what we really are are striving for so much of our time. I mean, I feel bad for some people. They think that when they get to retirement, that's when they can have their own paradise on earth. You know, get rid of all the things in their life they don't want to do and just do what they want to do. But what the king says is that ends, ends up at a dead end. You know, I don't think there's anybody here this morning that has slaves. I hope not. I doubt that there's anybody here who has, even has servants. But we don't really need them these days, do we? We have appliances and electronics and computers and a lot of the stuff we don't really want to do in life, we do have something to do it for us. And so we can really identify with why this king wanted to build this estate and have this life of ease and comfort on the estate. He mentions then his pleasure in his wealth. Look at verse 8. He speaks of great herds of large and small animals and how he accumulated great amounts of gold and silver. And again, if this is Solomon writing this about his own life, you remember that in 2 Chronicles chapter 9, verse 27, talking about the great wealth of Solomon, it says that in the, in the days of Solomon's reign, the king made silver as common as stone in Jerusalem. That's how wealthy he was. And then he seeks out pleasure in the arts. Look at verse 8 again in the middle there. He says, I got singers, both men and women. I'm reminded of what Martin Luther said. He said, next to the word of God, the noble art of music is the greatest treasure in the world. And so the king gave him over, himself over to the enjoyment of music and I'm sure many other arts. Think about how rare and precious that was in the days of the Old Testament. There weren't any recordings back then. There were no iPods. There were no Bose speaker systems in cars and houses. You didn't have music everywhere you went like we do these days. It was rare. It was precious. It was extremely valuable to people. All music was live music. And so can you imagine how wealthy you'd have to be to have live music in your own home, in your own palace, like this king had? Only the very wealthy could have had it. And then he gets to the sixth category of pleasure that he explored full-heartedly. And that's pleasure in sex. Look at the end of verse 8. Now again, if this is Solomon, and it may well be writing this, you can understand why he seems to add this last one on quickly and quietly at the end of the list, almost under his breath. Oh yeah, and also the many concubines. (laughs) As I know, he had an awful lot of regret as he thought about how he gave himself over in hindsight to the pleasures of sex for sex's sake. The concubines, the many wives, 
These were the downfall of Solomon. Let me read to you that portion from 1 Kings chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women, from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, You shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. He had 70 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned away his heart. It's interesting, that word concubines, if you do a word study on that in the old Hebrew, it's actually a very obscure word, and they, had hard, they have difficulty translating it. They think that the root of the word comes from the word for breast, and so it's probably a demeaning term towards women. In other words, only for whatever sexual pleasure they can offer, and that's really obviously how Solomon viewed the women in his life. How could you view them other with, otherwise with a thousand of them in your life? It certainly wasn't about relationship. Matter of fact, did you notice in this whole passage how many times the word myself or for myself appears? That's the overriding theme of all these six different kinds of pleasures that he pursues. He's doing it all for himself. The search was self-centered. Well, what was his conclusion? All these six very familiar areas to us, our culture pursues them too. All six of these areas, he ends at the the end of his search. What's his conclusion? That's what you get in verse 11. Then I considered all that my hands had done and the toil that I expended in doing it. And behold, all was vanity and a striving after the wind. And there was nothing to be gained under the sun. Doesn't that very well describe the perspective of the morning after the party? It's all meaningless. It's vanity. It's empty. It's vapor. It's soap bubbles. Fun while it lasted, but when it is over, it's all gone, and there's no meaning, no purpose to it whatsoever. I kind of skipped over verse 2 where it says that laughter is mad. Laughter is useless. I thought about that. Isn't that something that we often turn to when we get frustrated and discouraged in life under the sun, we turn to laughter. It reminds me of probably the darkest period of my life, and unfortunately, the way it worked out in God's providence, the darkest period of my professional life, my career, my ministry life, coincided exactly with the darkest period of my personal family life, going through difficulty, great difficulties in both areas. And I remember during those months, which were very difficult, every day I just felt like this burden hanging on my shoulders, I would work a hard day and I would come home from the office and I would sit down at supper time and I just want to turn my mind off and just stop thinking about everything that was upsetting me. And so I'd turn on the TV and of course that time of day the news comes on. You certainly don't want to watch the news when you're feeling like that. And so I'd flip around the channels. You know what I always settled on? They showed it every day at supper time. Funniest home videos. And I would sit there and laugh at those stupid videos. Laugh at them for an hour. And I became addicted to funniest home videos. I I look forward to that hour of just laughing and just forgetting the problems I was going through. But you know what? When the hour was over, all the problems were still there. It's all meaningless, all purposeless. What use is it, ultimately, to laugh? Derek Kidner, the great commentator, speaks of the paradox of hedonism. 
The more you seek pleasure in this world, the less you find it. Reminds me of the old, I love Johnny Cash. I love his, his song called Hurt. If you've never seen the video for Hurt, it's a great video. Google it, look it up. But in that song, and actually Johnny didn't write the song, but Johnny chose the song because he felt it was a good summary as he looked back on all the wasted years of his drug indulgence and drinking and partying and, and life as a music star, a media person. And in the middle of that song, or the chorus of the song, this is what he says. What, I, what have I become, my sweetest friend? Everyone I know goes away in the end. And you can have it all, this empire of dirt. I will let you down, I will make you hurt. That's what really this king is saying. It's all an empire of dirt. All of this estate, all this wealth, all these servants, all the pleasure I've had in life, it's meaningless in hindsight. And we live in a culture that more than anything else has devoted itself to finding meaning, meaning and purpose in pleasure. Isn't that what our culture is all about, more or less? Alex de Tocqueville, it's nothing new. Alex de Tocqueville, the great French thinker from the early 1800s, visited America and wanted to study what, what's making America great, but he also saw an undercurrent that disturbed him, and this is how he described it. He said, there's a strange melancholy that inhabits that haunts the inhabitants of America, a strange melancholy in the midst of their abundance. And that's what the writer of Ecclesiastes is talking about. That sadness, that despair that comes from devoting your life to pursuing pleasure. It's what Paul was describing in 2 Timothy 3 verse 4 when he says that people under the sun become lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. And there's the key issue. There is where we begin to respond to this worldview that says all that exists is what's under the sun and there's no meaning and purpose in wisdom and knowledge and there's no meaning and purpose in pleasure. What's the answer? How do you find true meaning? And what's interesting is that you don't have to give up pleasure in order to find meaning and purpose in life, but you need to see pleasure as an avenue to the one who gives it. My life and my discipleship, my relationship to Jesus Christ changed dramatically about 15 years ago. I grew several levels deeper by reading a particular book that had been recommended to me for many years. I'm sure many of you have read it too. A book by John Piper called Desiring God. If you haven't read it, please put it on your reading list. I recommend that book. It's of the five or six books I recommend over and over and over, it's one of them because it changed my whole perspective on what it meant to be a disciple of Christ. He introduced me to the concept to what he calls Christian hedonism, and he particularly picks that term just to kind of provoke us. Christian hedonism. Sounds like those two words should never go together. But what he was trying to say is that it's not seeking pleasure that's wrong. Matter of fact, we can't avoid seeking pleasure. Matter of fact, our creator wired us and designed us so that we desire pleasure and seek after it. That's our nature. The crucial issue is where we seek our pleasure from. What's the source of pleasure in our lives? When we're born again, when God intervenes in life under the sun and when he intervenes in your life and he takes away your heart of stone and he gives you a heart of flesh and gives you new birth from above he doesn't take your hunger for pleasure away what he does is he begins to transform it 
He transforms your hunger for pleasure so that you now are no longer satisfied with the pleasures of sin and the pleasures of this world alone, but you're only satisfied by the pleasures of the things above the sun. In the early, the first chapter of Desiring God, Piper quotes, and I'm sure many of you have heard this before. I know I've quoted it many times, but I'll read it for you again. The truth here is profound. It's a quote from C.S. Lewis. And this is what Lewis says. He says, if we consider the unblushing promises of reward and the staggering nature of the rewards promised in the Gospels, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures, fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. It's that we settle for pleasure in sin and settle for pleasure in this created world when we're meant to find our pleasure in higher, greater, more glorious things. Our ultimate pleasure... And this is what we were created to be before the fall. Our ultimate pleasure. When you think of all the things in your life that give you pleasure, whether it's a great meal, whether it's a great concert, a great baseball game, whatever it is that gives you pleasure in life, your career, your, your spouse, whatever gives you pleasure, the thing that, is, that you are wired and designed to, to find the most pleasure in before the fall was in seeing the glory of God. Remember Moses, he had a chance to ask one thing of God. What did Moses ask him for? Show me your glory. Because when you see the glory of God, you go to your knees and you worship. And there is no greater pleasure than true, heartfelt worship of the one true God. That is your greatest pleasure. As Piper adapts the first catechism answer, he adapts it to say, the chief end of man is to glorify God by enjoying him forever because that's the greatest way we glorify him is by enjoying him you see what happens when you're given a new heart when you're born from above is that that temper your your view of the temporary pleasures of sin changes we had that those verses read to us a while ago from hebrews 11 where moses knew the pleasures of wealth and and privilege and and palaces and everything from his time of royalty in egypt but he chose to suffer with the people of God because he knew that a relationship with God was worth far more than all the pleasures that this world could offer him. And he exchanged the fleeting pleasures of sin, that passage says, for the eternal pleasures of the kingdom of God. But what's beautiful is that what happens is that you don't have to give up the pleasures of this, this earth that are legitimate. There are things that God created in the world that are meant to give us pleasure. Apple pie is one of God's greatest gifts. He wants us to enjoy it. He gives us baseball. It's the greatest sport ever created so that we can enjoy it. He gives us the beauty of this creation so that we can enjoy it. We're meant to enjoy it, but the question is, what do you do with it? Do you make an idol out of it? Do you make that pleasure that you get in creation the end Is that what it's all about? It's just that moment of pleasure? If that's all it is, then you're in the same place that the writer of Ecclesiastes is in. Eventually, it all becomes meaningless and purposeless. God gave us these pleasures, but he gave them with instructions. It's just like sex. Sex is a pleasure. It's a gift to us from God, 
but we have to obey the instructions. We have to follow the instructions the way he designed it, the way he intended it to be. And when we do, then we get the greatest pleasure. It's like that in everything. Follow his instructions, enjoy the pleasure the way he dictates, and you'll find the greatest pleasure in that field. But it's not just that. When we enjoy those things, it's meant to point us to the giver of the gift. It's meant to point us to the giver. Wives, if your husband comes home on your anniversary and brings a beautiful big bouquet of flowers to you because it's your anniversary, you're going to enjoy the beauty of those flowers. But that's not the greatest pleasure, is it? Because when you look at the beauty of those flowers, you immediately think of the beauty of the relationship you have with your husband. And so the attention ultimately goes from the beauty of the gift to the beauty of the giver, and you see the glory of God. That's the way it's supposed to work. That's the way pleasure is meant to work in this life. I, at this time of year, I get to have devotions on our sun porch, on the back of our house. So every morning I get up to read my Bible and I pray on the sun porch and there's big windows and I can see my entire backyard and it's kind of a private backyard. And so I spend time reading the Word of God and, and by the Word of God, my perspective is lifted from the mundane earthly things and my, I, I, my perspective is lifted to the throne of heaven and I see things from God's perspective and I see the glory of God revealed in His Word and I'm drawn towards Him And then I look out those big windows and I see the beauty of the trees and I see the beauty of the flowers and I see the rabbits hopping across the backyard and I watch the squirrels climbing up the trees and I purposely put my bird feeders right next to the window so I can be just with a few feet away and watch these delicate, wondrously beautiful little creatures, these birds. And you know what? I'm in the right state of mind to really enjoy those things, to really enjoy them because I'm already tuned in to the presence of God. And so when I see a beautiful bird, I say, thank you, Lord. Thank you for that gift. And you see how that's a far greater pleasure than anything that this earth can offer, is when we enjoy it as a gift from the one who redeemed us. In the movie Groundhog Day, in his despair, as I said, Phil Phil, uh, becomes... He becomes suicidal. As a matter of fact, he tries to kill himself over and over and over again. Tries many creative means to end his life, but every time he kills himself, he wakes up on the same day, listening to the same Sonny and Cher song. And so he gets eternal life, in a sense, but it's eternal life under the sun. And that's the kind of eternal life you don't want. And after experiencing that, after his period of despair, this is where the movie really does get profound. He kind of comes to grips with that, and out of his despair, he decides, you know what? Maybe the way to find meaning and purpose in life is actually to be nice to other people, to start to do nice things for people, to start serving people. And he goes around fixing people's flat tires, and he, and he saves people's lives, and he learns to be a doctor so he can perform medicine, and he He learns to be a musician so he can perform concerts to make other people happy. And he becomes this very loving, serving person and this wonderful person by the end of the movie. And that's all true insofar as it goes. You can find meaning and purpose through serving others. But what's missing? What's missing from the movie? The gospel. The gospel of Jesus Christ. Because the movie doesn't tell us how can you change How does a selfish, self-centered jerk like Phil become a loving, serving, 
humble man. Only, the only way that can happen is through the life-transforming message of the gospel. Because you guys must be born again. None of us have that ability within ourselves. It's a gift that must come again from God. We've got to die with Christ at the cross and be raised with him again as new creatures, with new hearts, with new desires, with a heart that wants to worship and know God and a heart that wants to love our neighbor as ourselves. That's something God must do to us. Something he must give to us as a gift. And that gift comes by faith. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And he'll transform your desires so that you can really be satisfied with the pleasures that you seek in life. Let me close with Psalm 37, verse 4. Listen carefully. Delight yourself in the Lord, and he will give you the desires of your heart. Don't ever get that backwards. Delight yourself in the Lord, and then he will give you the desires of your heart because he will transform your desires so that they become God-honoring, God-centered, and ultimately eternal, and there's where you'll find your meaning and purpose. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you that we are not slaves to our lusts and our passions. But Lord, we thank you that when we come to Christ, you don't ask us to give up our desire for pleasure, our enjoyment of pleasure, but actually you transform it so that we enjoy the good things of life, the things you intended for us in ways that are far more powerful, much more satisfying than we ever could have imagined. Thank you, Lord, for opening our eyes and changing our hearts. Thank you for the blood shed at the cross that made it all possible. Thank you for receiving us and making us part of your eternal family. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.